Hello and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism, a podcast asking the question, what does it mean to be fully alive in the 21st century? And how do we best maintain that sensation of aliveness while dealing with the unique pressures of this strange and potent time? My name is Brett Kane. I'll be your host on this journey. I'm a licensed massage therapist and mindfulness meditation instructor. And joining us today is my good friend, Rob Ryder. He's a performance coach and movement specialist who works with entertainers, musicians, professionals, and presenters to create intentional peak performances. Rob's been performing and coaching for the past 40 years and has studied with some amazing people and has really created a program that has benefited a lot of people that I know personally. So in this conversation, we're going to be talking about his work that he does through Coach Presence, which is his main spearhead. And in this conversation, it's really going to be about what exactly is presence and how can you use it to really elevate your performing abilities. And, you know, spoiler alert, we're always performing. So this conversation is really something that I think everybody will benefit from. If you have any sort of speaking engagement that you are required to do, if you have social anxiety, if you want to just meet new people, this conversation is really going to hone in on what exactly it is that captures people's attention and how to best utilize that opportunity to create a beautiful, loving exchange that benefits everybody involved. You know, this is a really important aspect of what it means to be fully alive in this current century, you know, now when everybody is so attention deprived. So to be able to really hone in on the art of moving the energy of people's awareness for their benefit is something that is just huge. And Rob does a really wonderful job of walking us through this and really kind of enticing to step a little bit deeper, you know, and that's something I really want to encourage you as you listen to this. Rob has also written some books. uh, So I really encourage you to check out one of the links on the description, the Performer's Essential Handbook uh, he ended up giving to me. And I'm really, really enjoying it and finding a lot of benefit, uh, stuff that I'm going to be using in this podcast pretty much forever and all of my other social engagements. So this is some really powerful stuff. He has a really wonderful story that we get into, and then we get into a lot of his techniques. We get into a lot of the key factors of his coaching program, and I think that you're really going to get a lot. So I really suggest getting a pen and pad and just really soaking up what Rob has to offer, you know, and this is all Um, you know, we have an hour and, you know, he's trying to distill something that is, uh, you know, the, the fruit of his entire life's work. So I really encourage you to give it, give him some of your attention, give him some of your time and, uh, maybe work with him. I mean, he does virtual stuff as well, and he can really look into where you are at exactly and really help you figure out your performance hangups and really, really elevate you to that next level that I know you want to be at. So that's what we're going to be doing today, y'all. I hope that this finds you well. Uh, you know, we're in April right now, and uh, I'm here in Michigan, and it's it's almost warm, but it's almost not warm. It just doesn't know what it wants to do. So it's, it's a good time, though. We got some snow today, so I'm just going to let that be what it is. Uh, yeah, if you want to support the show, please head on over to Apple Podcast. Leave us a review. You can like, comment, subscribe, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook. You know, all the social media things, we're pretty much everywhere at this point. Engagement really helps us rise through the ranks. So let me know what you're thinking about the show. We also got that Patreon. So that's patreon.com slash 21st Century Vitalism. Helps me keep the lights on. Helps me put more energy into 
this project. This is something I'm going to do for a really long time, but it would be nice to get some compensation. So I appreciate you so much for tuning in, doing whatever you can, showing up in whatever way serves you best. Uh, that's what we're going to be doing today. Head on over to Coach Presence. Also check out Rob's stuff as well. He's got some online content waiting for you. So I'm not going to waste any more of your time, y'all. We have Rob Ryder coming on the show. So open up your hearts, drink some tea, do some stretches, and please welcome my friend Rob. Rob, we are now live. Welcome to your basement for 21st Century Vitalism. Thanks for coming on the show, man. How are you? I'm good. It's great to be here. And I'm glad you're here because uh, while it is a basement or a lower level, it is the studio for which I uh, depart a lot of information. So yeah. a lot of creative uh, minds show up here. It's really great. You can really feel the energy in here, too. I felt that the very first time I came over and you made us all dinner, I was like, oh, some shit goes down in here. I don't really know what yet. Well, just as a side note, when I was building this place, I put in on the uh, insulation all sorts of symbolisms that are, uh, uh, you know, considered high vibe kinds of things. So the whole back of the behind the walls are filled with mantras and different things that I just took from a lot of different cultures. I just knew it was going to be a creative space, so why not add a little flair? I love that. I love the setting the intention even as you're kind of constructing the space. That's huge for how you engage with it. Yeah. And as it turned out, as performers came and started performing here, because while uh, the viewers may not be able to see the space, it's not that big of a space, but we were able to get 65 chairs in here for a house concert. Yeah, with a dial. <laughs> and so uh, what happened was the, uh, the, the sound quality was so good. And they all asked me how. And it just happened that the, um, uh, the what do you call this part, the bulkhead bounced the sound just right that you could hear a pin drop. So it became a very fun um, uh, listening space for artists to show uh, their abilities. And often what I did as I started coaching, uh, they would pay me for the coaching, but in turn, they would get reimbursed, reimbursed many of them that were able to perform here, uh, double the money they paid in many cases. But you're right, I did cook, and I always cooked a really nice meal for everybody because uh, I wanted them to have an experience that they would never forget being treated so well because I'm on my 44th, 45th year of performing. And, uh, and I've had some, you know, uh, putting makeup on in a bathroom in a gas station, you know, and, you know, begging for water from a venue. So I didn't want any of the performers to have that. I wanted to treat them well. So. That's amazing. Yeah. So that's a little bit of history here. The space that we're in. So I feel like some people are going to need a little bit of context for that sure. statement of putting makeup on in a bathroom when you're talking about performing i mean we have i think you can see the little ukulele behind you i know you yeah. play guitar yes when was your first foray into performing and how is this something you knew you really wanted to make yeah. your life it's interesting because i do play music and I've, I've picked up the guitar since i was a kid but it wasn't my main expression i was able to play with some talented people 
uh, more of just the rhythm, but you know, background, and then do some singing. And that was in the '70s. So I got to play with an extraordinary musician, Danny Hines, and uh, it was fun. And he taught me a lot. And uh, it was the beginning of that that performance. But the real, and I did a little bit of theater in college, but it really wasn't my thing as much as um, trying to understand the nature of the mind. And we'll probably get there at some point. But I had physical abilities. I was very skilled and uh, physically adept. And then I took that into, I studied with the first Chinese grandmaster and did Tai Chi in college. And to date myself, that was in 1973, next year I graduated. And that started this quest into this body, more of an Eastern approach to the body. And I had done quite a bit of yoga at that point. And, uh, but it was a couple few years later that I had seen a friend. I lived out in California in Santa Barbara. And he, he was doing these forms. I'm like, what is that? And he said, it's Kung Fu. And I went, oh, wow, I want to learn that. Because, you know, I'd watch the series with David Carradine and all that stuff. And uh, it was a pretty rigorous training. And uh, I, I enjoyed it. And then, meanwhile, in my travels, because I'm not the best linguist, um, I had learned how to juggle uh, balloon animals, magic. And I would do that to interact with people because I couldn't speak the language, but it was always welcomed and a warm welcome. And uh, so those were skill sets that were in the background. And when I met two mimes, or and they met me, they had suggested that I start performing. And uh, they had shown me a few, you know, a few moves. And, and so it was from that experience of these very generous people, uh, um, Robert Strauss or Robert and Osha, Hunt and uh, Osha was the one that saw me on the beach in Santa Barbara and said, "What, what is all the, what are all those skill sets? Like, who are you?" And uh, she said, "Can you do this?" And I'm like, "Well, yeah." She goes, "Oh my goodness, you should be a mime with all those skill sets. You could come under a variety performer as a mime." So that's really what started. I have I'm indebted to Osha, and she had studied with uh, Marcel Marceau's ex-wife in in and. She had skill sets and I had none. So she showed me a few things, but she said, you're just so playful. Just take that character out. So that is what I did. And, and I got hired my very first time performing. I got hired by a corporation and, um, and then I went, okay, there's something to this. And then lo and behold, I called my parents up and I said, hey, because they thought they wanted me to do medicine and all that stuff. And I had science and psychology in the background. Uh, I said, I'm going to be a mime. <laughs> And it got quiet. I went, yeah, kind of like that, you know. And my mom said, well, I hear there's this mime troupe at Grand Valley State Colleges at the time before it became university. And Tom Lubhardt, who became my first formal teacher in the school of Etienne de Croo, because he had spent many, many years in Paris with uh, de Croo. And uh, it was a a great departure from what I was doing, street performing and shows that I was getting and, and things like that, to this formal kind of movement. And it turns out that Marcel Marceau also studied with uh, Etienne de Croo. So it was hard for me because uh, Tom was a purist and, and uh, um, corporeal mime, as, as it was called, uh, wasn't about illusions and telling a story like pantomime does. It was more this physical body and this presence on stage. And, and it was more psychological and abstract. 
and and uh, not much would go on. And the saying is less is more. And at the time, I'm like, wow. And he didn't even want me to perform the pantomime. I went, I got shows. I'm booked for a year. I mean, I, I love what I do. So it was, it was it was a conflict in my mind. There was conflict there. And I had no idea how much of his lessons for two and a half years every day would become part of my future. Here we are 45 years later. And I still teach those principles because DeCrew was brilliant. So without going too much into that, that was the, the humbling, the humblest beginnings uh, of a, an adventure. And, and from there, the road became very interesting for me. I really have heard none of that. We've been going to the gym together for yeah. like six months. And I knew that the mime life was a part of your history. And uh, it's interesting for me from someone in my generation, because we really don't have a lot of, I don't know a single other mime. Right. Or like, one that'll talk to you. That's probably it too. <laughs> is this something that you've kind of noticed has kind of fallen away a little bit? Or is there still kind of a strong mime community? Or Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I've never been part of the mime community uh, you know, I've always, I mean, I would meet somebody that was a performer because I did after that, I did study with Marcel Marceau and I, you meet mimes from all over. He, he came to Michigan and, uh, I did a summer intensive with him and it was beautiful and he really appreciated me. And at the time he asked me to come to Paris to his school. And I reminded him that I was, uh, 29 and his cutoff age was 24. He goes, Oh, Bill, you look good. <laughs> so he, but I was already booked out and I had a family going and I love my life here. So I actually declined to go to uh, France. And you always wonder about those things when you decline things. Uh, I had agents in New York that wanted me. They said they could book me three times a day, you know, bar mitzvahs and weddings, you know, something like that. I also declined that because I'm just not a big city guy. And I thought three shows a day would be the death of me. And, uh, I, and so I chose to stay with my, you know, family and create a family and a life here and then travel out and do shows. And that's just how that, that's how that happened. And, uh, I also studied with Tony Montanero. And so those are, those are some of the more formal trainings. Simultaneously, my true interest was in the understanding of the nature of consciousness itself. And I'd started very early on, uh, Bertrand Russell was a book my uncle had given me and it was beyond my even ability to understand it, but it started it. And then he gave me this book by uh, Krishnamurti and it was called Freedom from the Known. And I read it. I could theoretically understand it, but it was beyond my, my reach of imbibing it. So, uh, but it all made just perfect sense. So it turns out he had a, a school in Ojai, which was a few 30 miles from Santa Barbara, so I went and saw him, and it, it changed my whole life. It changed the whole tra trajectory of, of what was uh, truly important to me and where I would unfold in my own uh, consciousness, simultaneously performing and raising a family. There was this opening of the mind that was occurring. So one of the first things that I, I, I remember him saying is, don't make a psychological problem out of a problem. So that's been a hallmark as best I can is when I find my mind gets too chattery, I'm like, no, 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 don't just deal with the problem or the issue or, or the situation. And so that was very helpful for staying on point 
doing what I had to do. And there was one more thing that I thought was interesting, and it came out of, I, this is eighth grade, I mean, I can't believe I did this, but I was reading Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich, and it was eighth grade. And I don't remember much about it, nor, it's kind of funny, I can't find the quote. You know, I've been like thumbing through it, and I'm like, I can't find this quote. But somehow in my mind, I got it from this book, and it was um, the difference between someone who does something and someone who doesn't is just that. Between the two, there are the principles that I follow every day, and I don't let my mind get too busy up or too interruptive, if that's a word, to stop me from achieving something if I say I'm going to go do that. I generally can have chatter, like as simple as even making a bed. And well, I'm going to do it later. Nope. Difference between someone who does something and someone who doesn't is just that. So I just, I, I happen to get things done. And uh, I remember my kids affectionately called me the getter done daddy. <laughs> so those were the humble beginnings until I spent more time in, in um, more with the Indian culture in terms of um, um, uh, the guru of India that was considered the highest of the gurus, their ability to transfer energy and create a, uh, a response within my own physiology, which was quite expansive. And that and studying with Master Lee um, my Kung Fu teacher and grandmaster of the world. So, and I became his teacher and dedicated and worked hard to, to do all that. And between the two paths, something really magically happened. And um, I was able to um, uh, experience a different viewpoint in living. And it's that viewpoint that I, I, I express. And then sometime later, I know this is kind of new to you, you don't know this, but I spent some time with other Indian masters, and what happened was I climbed a mountain in California, and uh, I was under stress at the time, psychological, trying to figure out, you know, do I stay married, do I go, you know, just things like that, and the family life, and all that stuff was interesting to me, and my mind had an explosive moment where it let everything go, and it was not of my accord. I was... Uh, practicing meditation and different things. And for some reason, something happened and it expanded my consciousness. I lost all fear and uh, had abilities and, and a way to synthesize life that I didn't ever have before that happened. And it was that experience that I wrote about in my first book. It's called um, Life is Not What You Think. Yeah, Life is Not What You Think. Permission to go out of your mind. Because I realized between what I had been doing and what was happening for me personally, that thinking is a way to live in life, but it wasn't a direct experience of living. In other words, our label for, for an object, like our word apple for, for this fruit, pretend I'm holding, the word apple, it didn't come from the fruit. So it really had nothing to do with the fruit other than in conversation, I could say, hey, Brett, would you pass the apple? And you would know that's what I was talking about, hopefully. Uh, but otherwise, right? But otherwise, I realized there was, a, there was a disparity between the two. There was a label and all my ideas about an apple, which weren't anything to do with an apple. Now, I know that just seems so simple, but when you apply that to everything in life, you begin to recognize that life itself is a nonstop creative process in which time and space don't really exist. 
And from that, I realized principles of living. And those were the principles of also performing and connecting with people and understanding, well, what, what is life? What is this presence, this, you know, source being? What, what is all that? And I'd done other activities that helped me unwind my own programming. And it was really a synthesis of all that that has come to have me teach now the art of presence. And you could say it the art of presence and presentation, because there's there's presence, which you don't have to do anything. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have you are that presence. And we'll interchange that with maybe awareness or uh, consciousness on a larger level, not necessarily personal consciousness, like um, and the labels that come with it, because then we're back to the beginning where I'm stuck in words. There's an energetic thing that I consider is who we all are and what is this experience of living. And that, and I use the word presence because when you're so quiet, you can feel the emanation of life itself, experiencing life. And it doesn't have words. Now, it doesn't mean you can't use words. I am obviously use words. I wrote two books, uh, you know, writing a third and fourth right now. So I use the words, but they point in a direction for which the words have to be dropped at some point. And there has to be this... Uh, quiet or otherness quality that you recognize is underlaying all of life. So one way and one of the first principles I teach before we even get into performance is who are you? And Ramana Maharshi said, to whom has this thought arisen? Who am I? And it was that very sentence in question that caused that reaction on the mountain that caused me to literally uh, drop my mind. For some reason, it triggered something, and something magically magical happened in that moment. And when you sense this, or there's a sensibility about it, there's a there's the you, who we all are the same, and even the bad people in the world, they they still are born of that sourceness and that uh, presence is still there. And then there's behavior, and that's where we get in trouble. That's where people that are, you know, can be murderous and scoundrels and awful, as well as being, you know, other people can be loving and gracious and generous. Those are behaviors. So when you begin to look at it closer, to me, it's good to know the difference. It's good to know that I am, which is that source energy, just meaning I am, you could say I am alive. And then I am a brother, I am a father, I am an actor, I am a, a podcast attendee, I am an author, I am a cleaner, I am a laundry guy. I'm, and all those things afterwards are behaviors or sociological phenomena, meaning I am a brother or a father. You could call that a sociological relationship. So putting it together was an interesting uh, experience that, again, going all the way back, that I believe Etienne de Creux figured out there's this presence and that you can um, express that presence no matter what you're doing. And meaning less mini-mind that's trying to control outcomes and fear-based and more this love of experience. And there's techniques and all that for, for performing. But I realized that they weren't too far apart and that less is more and that more is not more. And, and, and we get in our way. So uh, that's what started that process. And five, I've been teaching for many years since I began 
early 80s of teaching uh, mime classes at the time. And now it's a performance class because I never really created a mime. I don't know if anybody would want to be a mime. It's not, you know, you go up there with some makeup and a costume and you don't talk for 45 minutes or an hour. I'm not sure anybody wants to do that. You know, we're so used to being um, in our verbalness. Uh, but for some reason, when I perform, I begin to put the makeup on, which I now share at the beginning of my show. I literally could put it on in a few moments and... Um, and I, I can feel this quality where I shift from the speaking Rob Ryder to this awareness of all that's going on in the room. And it shifts into this presence. And then there's shtick and there's skills and things like that. But something qualitatively does come through. And I find, and I've heard, I, I'm not saying that, I'm not testifying by my own words, by, by other words, that people have often said they feel shifted into this moment, this now moment. Now, I have to say this. We're always in a now moment. You can't get out of it. Try it. You can't get out of it. You can't get more spiritual. You can behave a certain way as people do as a behavior, but it doesn't make you more spiritual. It's just a behavior. And I'm not saying good, bad, right, or wrong with any of this. I'm just saying that Something happens, and I think that what happens is that focus of attention becomes in a more feeling way than in a thinking way. And uh, moving from thinking to feeling is, a, is a, not in a conditional feeling way where I feel good, I feel bad, but just this feel, felt sense of living. And I think that the show might bring people, because they, there's no words, so they have to focus in a different way. They're looking at me. And that's one of the principles that actually I teach uh, other performers, musicians like myself and other people that are on stage. We don't say, hey, I'm going to go listen to Rob or Brett play. They usually say, hey, do you want to go see Rob or Brett? They say, see. I want to go. I want to watch them. I want to go watch them. You want to go down to, you know, the venue, whatever that may be. So there's a, I think that there's a, uh, a physiological dominance of the eyes uh, maybe to avoid saber-toothed tigers from the old days, but that our eyes see so much and registers on, it goes right into other people's minds. Because <laughs> I know this is kind of a trippy thing, but when you think about how do you see me, I'm not out here. That's not how you see me. There's some kind of process where the eyes take it in the brain. I'm actually in your brain. It's converted and then relatively put back out here. Same with sound. So space is almost non-existent. We exist within each other in, in a really physiological way. That's just how we show up. But we don't think about it like that. We project outside and everything's outside ourselves. But truthfully, we experience it all. And it's our, as you well know, it's our response to everything that causes us love or fear or misery and happiness. It's how we are with what happens. And I'm not trying to be a certain way or tell people how to be. It's not a moralistic thing. I'm speaking strictly the science of physiology. That is just how we show up. And when you begin to understand those principles, you can apply them to performance. And so the, the, the second book I wrote after coaching a lot of people here, uh, California, Hollywood, and all, all sorts of places, uh, is that 
there are some principles that I got from DeCrew and just from the nature of consciousness that makes us um, experience life differently should we wish to, even on stage. Because in a sense, stage is almost a place for acute anxiety to happen. And people's um, uh, trying to control outcomes while not showing it makes it worse. And their ticks show up and their little shakes and all their things like that. It's interesting to me. And so the process of teaching people has been an extraordinary uh, revealment for them to undo some of those fears that are going on on a very deep personal level. Let those go and just be with the audience. And so when we talk about presence and presentation, we're talking about a connection that can happen between a performer and the audience. And it's theirs. It's not mine. I don't own any of this. I just notice these principles that occur. And as people drop the psychological things that are going on, they just become more real. And so there's there's some um, principles that I like from DeCrew. One is less is more. Well, too much psychological ticking, and pretty soon you're like, what's wrong with them? And what are they doing up there? And, and all that stuff. So uh, I've sort of put together two different worlds of this unfoldment and understanding to wherever I'm at with it, the nature of consciousness and the art of presentation. Because when are we not presenting? You know, they say all the world is a theater. I mean, it's true. We're all acting in a certain way. And I'm not making it wrong or bad because we're going to have to interface somehow. But a lot of times, you know, nonverbal communication tells me a lot. And it's, um, and it may be underrated, <clears throat> but we do take in information a lot of different ways. And so that's been the quest and the journey and, and years and years of teaching and helping people let go of some of these patterns that are, uh, I would call indoctrinated, adopted by our, us. We adopt them, yes, parents, teachers, peers, school, society lays a lot of stuff out there. And sometimes we hop aboard and take it for a ride. But the truth is, we take it for a ride. And so it's all ours, in a sense. And, and so um, when you're performing, there's just, you know, there's just no time for that. <laughs> You know, you got to let that go. You got to say, not make a psychological problem out of a problem. You just got to let it go and stay connected with someone and, and be really real. Whatever that is, sadness, happiness, whatever you're expressing up there, you know, just be, be real because it brings us to our humanity. And there's a magical connection that happens, in my opinion. And that's how I use the word presence in terms of performance. And so when I teach, I call it the art of presence. And when I teach, it can be very, a lot of very personal, so to speak, meaning it's individual. I won't use the word personal. Individual attention, because I can see so much that's being expressed by somebody, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But it doesn't matter what I can see. What matters is, can they see and then let it go? Because they can. And when they make that choice to let it go, they just become more comfortable in their own skin and, and therefore more comfortable for the audience. And the audience is, uh, you know, a lot of times they love you. They, they 
a lot of times paid money to come see you. They've tried to get really good seats. They're really doing their best. They're in anticipation. And then you have people that who perform who don't respect that. They just go on and play their thing or do their thing, and there's no connection. And uh, there's been different eras of music that have, uh, in my opinion, uh, not done, not served well for connecting with the audience. Um, maybe I don't want to say any one potentially oh, grunge area. Say, oh, okay, <laughs> you know. <Nirvana> and- <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't want to say any band, but I just say that era where people were looking down and doing the music, because a lot of times um, I feel that. Um, you know, we work on our craft so much that we become absorbed in that craft. And then you go on stage and there's no connection. Now, it doesn't mean the skill set isn't there and that people don't appreciate it. They do. But what happens is if you can have that skill set and the connection, it's a magical occurrence for performers. And, you know, just... Um, people naturally leap to their feet with a standing ovation because they don't want it to end. It's not that it's cheap and, oh, I got to stand. and Oh, they're standing. Okay, I guess I got to stand too. It's not like that. It's more of a genuine, wow, don't end this now. You got me. And I want to I see more of you. Well, I'll buy some more of your merchandise and, and things like that. And that's been the experience that I, that I have seen with people that have, whether they've been with me or just come, to, come on their own to understand their own life. And uh, and all that happens in living and being sensitive to it and not callous and not cliched because that becomes a problem. I see a lot of people perform and they become like 60s TV hosts when they're talking. And so there's other principles. We we'll get to them if you if you want. But the but the cliche is they start acting like old performers and and it's because that's all they got to hang their hat on instead of just be so comfortable with themselves that they can be, um, you know, in love, expressing their own love of whatever they have to say and sing or do as a performer. Yeah, I really like this idea of cultivating presence, requiring an exchange with the people that you're actually interacting with, and that it really does kind of blur the lines of like you as an independent entity and like so much of how we perceive ourselves and all these ticks that come up is in direct relation to what we perceive other people as responding to us as. And then I like the idea that you said that we agree to it and it's something that we we choose, you know, we say yes to this and we constantly reinforcement. And that's kind of like the, the concept of karma is like, we are constantly planting these seeds and we're always watering these same seeds. And I think a big part of that is being able to see the process in itself. So what would you say is like the first step to cultivating this like art of presence and like really stepping into this expanded way of interacting with people. Yeah, that's that's good. I like what I like how you retextualize it. And it just reminds me that what I've tried to impart and I'll get to that first thing that I do and actually all the steps there's just a few that have become important but is that we've we've become mediocre in our our performance ability and we've trained the audience to be mediocre. And so the cliche in mediocre is just it's just um, it's not the full human range that somebody can get to in their own abilities and also in the connection with the audience and the audience's connection with you. So um, 
a lot of people are really happy because people come up and say, oh, you're so good, you're so good. They are so good. I, I've, I only work with people that are so good, but there's what I call peak performance or there's a deeper connection and, and it becomes something else. It, you know, And so that's for everybody to decide whether they want to be more or less connected with the audience and, and, and their own uh, abilities, you know. That's up to them. So the first thing is to really understand there's a you, and then there's, which is what we talked about a little bit ago, the presence or the source of life itself. And then the next thing is to understand there's a behavior. So when it comes to behavior, because that's all you can do, presence you don't have to work on. It's already there. Now it may be clouded over because your attention is somewhere else, internal, subconsciously, external, um, um, doing things that cause you to lose the attention of the audience. The only commodity in a performance is attention. See, it's not about the money and all that stuff. It's really about the connection because it becomes magical. When you connect with the audience in the way that, that I'm speaking of, there's a magic that happens. And it's, it's really a beautiful, loving exchange. And it's a physiological sense feeling that one can experience. So, all we then do is then, what are those behaviors? What, what's causing me not to have that experience? So the next thing we look at is need for approval. And it's kind of a big deal because on one side you have, I want you to approve of me. And on the other side of the same coin is, I don't want you to disapprove of me. And those are working, man, at lightning speed because we were trained we were trained that if we were good boys or good girls or good students, or we would get approval. And instead of being this whole being that we are, and no approval necessary, and there's things learned and things unlearned, and, and changing ideas and beliefs can just happen as quickly as one adopts one. Um, so to me, that need for approval needs to be looked at because that need for approval creates that acute social anxiety on stage but as one of the projects I'm working on is a, a presentation for uh, anxiety, but also a workbook for how to undo that anxiety. And you'll notice that uh, anxiety is um, usually about a future event or a past event. You know, something's bugging me in the past or something's good. I don't want to go talk to that person, you know, that kind of thing. So those, those things have to be looked at. Well, what's the root cause of that, that uh, need for approval? Well, I don't know because it happens pretty early on. You know, you come in just as a beautiful being and pretty soon don't do this and don't do that and yikes. And what, what does that mean? The people that I love or are supposed to love me can do some damage. And, you know, trauma is real and, you know, things like that. So there becomes a, um, in, in a sense, a disconnect from living and more I've got to protect myself in living. And, you know, I had it. Other people have had that kind of um, harshness that a young being doesn't really, you know, doesn't need. They need love, you know, and to and, and understanding and sensitivity. But be that as it may, um, that is what that is the beginning of that approval. And you'll notice that you'll do it all day long. That need for approval. Like when somebody says, how are you? And you say, good. Well, socially, it's probably the right thing to do rather than, oh, my stomach's kind of bugging me. But on the other hand, it trains us to be not tell the truth about who we are because we want them to think 
I'm not weak or that I'm strong, whatever I, whatever we're protecting ourselves from. And those things will show up on stage, but believe me, the work that uh, I consider that I do with people isn't just about stage, it's about living. And the more you let go of some of those concepts, the more connected and more real and more direct you can be without worrying about controlling the outcome. Because guess what? You can anyways. It's an illusion that I think that you uh, are going to act a certain way if I act this way. And we know the cruelty in the world is certainly that's even going on now. Um, you know, I didn't see that one coming. That's pretty, pretty vicious behind this pandemic. Uh, and I don't approve of that kind of thing. So, yeah, I was just going to say that not only are we looking for approval and trying to fear the rejection of other people, we're also doing it with ourselves constantly. We're constantly disapproving of who we are and kind of lambasting ourselves. And we are our harshest critics, as I'm sure, you know, is something that you talk about often. Absolutely. And that's the thing. And I'm glad you said that because that's the, that's the other element of being on stage. And, um, Another nuance that I go into is that transactional analysis that came around so many years ago. And I, I remember my dad was uh, went into psychology and then counseling. And he came home one day um, saying, I'm okay, you're okay. And I'm like, well, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, dad. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm not sure where this is going. And so, I, you know, he did his thing and I was, you know, doing my thing. And so it was years later that I've included in my books. And, and that is that you have um, a critical parent and you have an emotional child. And we are often in that reaction in the world. And so critical parent certainly is the, you know, um, I don't want you to disapprove of me. Well, that's what a crit critical parent does. I know. I had them. <laughs> I had two of them, Right. And so the emotional child is a very demanding child and the critical parent. And where you want to be and what he was implying was their phrase, I'm okay, you're okay, is when you meet each other as an adult, adult to adult conversation. And so even now you want to shift that conversation to an adult to adult conversation. So when you're on stage, that need for approval is true that it comes there. But the first place it hits, because you don't know what somebody's thinking, you're thinking about what they're thinking. Well, guess what? Boom, critical parent. Wow, did I, do, did I sing right? Did I get it right? Did I play it wrong? No, blah, 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 blah. And all that spinning, and guess what? Loss of attention. And so what happens in the ongoing classes that people come after they've had coaching with me um, is that they, they watch other performers and they go, wow, you lost it right there, didn't you? And they go, yes, I can't believe you could do that. I was just thinking for a minute, what I was going to do for dinner, just for a second. It was just a brief thought, but the audience could feel it right away. And so there is that um, internal judger, monitor that is a tough critic. You know, it's on the inside. And yeah, that's very perceptive. Those are the things that one has to discount quickly because you can't stop some thoughts. They're just going to come. I'm not trying to control the mind. But like in the terms of mindfulness or some of the other practices, they are existing simultaneously and whatever value I give them is my problem. So they can come and they can go and I can still stay connected. And so the art of presence is also the art of uh, manipulating our own mind or letting go of some of the ideas that are coming in that mind. So that is the next part that we explore. And then the next part we explore is, so then, okay, who am I on stage? 
who am I trying to be? And you have people that, you know, adopt identities and uh, cliched moments. You know, they want to play a 70s rocker 50 years later. I'm like, all right, you know, <laughs> you know, some kind of veil versus just being themselves with their with their own human qualities to, and their own individuality and their own selfness. But instead, because of school, church, peers, parents, all the ways that we have been indoctrinated, we have, we've adopted our own, those come on stage as well as the stage of life. So, you know, when you're aware of it, again, once again, you have to let that go quickly. And, and be there for what it is you're intending to do. I just don't got time to start figuring out my psychological, financial, and all the other love worlds up on stage. Those, that's for when I'm off stage. When I'm on stage, there's a purpose I'm there. I'm either conveying something or doing something. And that is my connection to the audience. And the direction here and my direction with them is where the magic lies because we're sharing that experience uh, together. So. Who am I if I'm thinking I broke that connection? So then I look at, well, what is my role? What is the, and I call that the action. So what is the action that's required? Not how do I think about the action? Because there's so much of that psychological and emotional stuff that comes in. So can I just be with my action? And if you understand martial arts, I never understood this till I understood it. There is the action. And there's thinking about the action. And I remember my teacher, Master Lee, would say, too slow thinking, be the action. And so there's a crossover, to, you know, even the martial arts has, has shared itself and, and shown me the ways. So then, the, the, then we drift into, in, in terms of the coaching and, and the performance skill set is, we better understand attention. We need to know what this commodity is. Where is my attention at any given moment? And where is, where, where is the attention of the audience? Because I can go like this, and the whole audience will turn around the back of the room, right? So they're keen on, they, they got me. So we want to we wanna respect that attention and capture it and not do all the things that we do to repel attention because we have our own insecurities. And I'm not saying you have to drop all your insecurities, but... Just don't go there now. Your job is to express that musical quality or any kind of performance or, you know, I, I've coached a lot of people in life, political people, lawyers, anybody that gets in front of anybody to, to create this message directly to that person. Because what good is it if you don't get my message or I don't get your message? What good are we? Not much good at all. And then you get back to that mediocre experience, which isn't inspiring to me. So what would you say for the people? There's a strong behavior these days with kind of hiding in your phone. You know, that's like the ultimate like repelling of attention, right? It's yeah. saying like, I don't really want to show up to this. And that is, frighteningly, it's a very common thing these days. And it's in every public location. No, I, 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 I don't have much to say because it is a, a sociological phenomenon. Um, I, I, I don't want to judge being on a phone or not on a phone because sometimes I'm on the phone and and uh, it's interesting. I try to, you know, I try to glean something from it. Um, you know, I, I I don't know how to how to directly speak to that phenomena. But if I'm going to be with you, I can't be on my phone. 
If I'm going to be with you, I can't be in a thought in my head. I have to be right here, like a laser. Krishnamurti had said once, you need to watch your mind as if there's a cobra in the room with you. It's da that dangerous because the mind is very momentous and it'll create, you know, a mountain out of a molehill. It'll do whatever it's programmed to do. So it requires a lot of sensitivity and a lot of direction. So if being on the phone is an escape, I'm not going to judge that. I'm just saying, okay, is that, you know, your life's going by anyway. Is that, if that's cool with you, it's cool with me. I don't think people really get the impact of that, but uh, these this day and age, and especially through the pandemic, uh, a lot of times it's people's social connection, and it's become much more uh, these last couple of years. Even for myself, it's become much more. But I've also been very productive in this time, and I think, well, all right, I'm not performing, you know, because gatherings weren't happening as much in the last two years, so what can I do with what I got? And uh, the quote, I quoted my mom somewhere in that, uh, first book, uh, she said, it's not what you got, it's what you do with what you got. And that's really the magic for all of us. We all are uh, just incredible beings, you know, even if it doesn't feel like that a lot because of past trauma or, or past experiences. But that is the truth. Uh, and it's a great privilege to be alive. And if even it doesn't feel miraculous, who well, it is. Just the whole living experiences, it's been, in my opinion, dummied down by societal things that we have, like, you know, the food industry has caused people to not have healthy bodies. When I think about, you know, 50 years ago and things like that, there people weren't uh, as obese as they are now, and I'm not judging a person or anything like that, just saying it the way it is. When you went to the beach, it just didn't look like it does now. And the food industry is, um, you know, not looking out for necessarily your health. So you have to, that's still your responsibility. You have to decide about that. So even in the coaching of the, of the performers, I try to help them see the value of taking care of yourself so you can have longevity and an ability to move even at an older age, you know, and it requires effort, but then so does cancer. So you get to make a decision about what when you want to effort. People say, oh, you cook your food. And I go, yeah, I mean, I like my food and I cook my food. And it's not that I don't go out to eat. I tend to not eat what I would consider junk food, but oh, I'll call it this engineered food because I, I really think they do, they do a good job of trapping you in that engineered food. It tastes good, even to me. But it doesn't have a, a long shelf life in you. It may last for a long time on the shelves, but in you, it's going to create some other culture because that food becomes the blood eventually, and you are that blood quality. And, and so, so much of a, the cancers and things that we see are because of that. So I try to help people rest well, eat well, exercise well, integrate their mind, and do what they love to do. That's the basis of the next book. I'm, one of the books that I'm writing is called um, Never Age a Day. And that is so that people can make you know, better choices about how it is they are so that they can feel better and more aware about presenting. Because when you're not, you default to your past patterns. And that is just a problem. You're no longer source awareness with people. You're no longer creatively living in this now moment, so to speak, aware of it, 
you're just lost in a pattern of, you know, whatever it may be. And there's some, there's some trippy patterns out there. Not for me to judge, but it's not. It did. It hasn't ever helped me. So uh, drinking and and just different things are are. I'm not. I mean, I'm not speaking moralistically. I'm just physiologically speaking. Can you do what you want to do? I'm a climb. I climb. I mean, you know, I'm. I, I, my age is very different than my abilities. People are like, well, how do you do that at this age? And how do you do all that you do? Well, I try to practice what I preach. And I you know, work out, as you well know, and, and do things for my mind. And I eat well and uh, exercise, all that stuff. And rest my mind and also integrate my mind. In other words, integration to me is letting go of ideas that no longer serve you. So that's, you know... That's just a whole nother can of worms, you know, to let go of our past and, and really see, feel the experience of living. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed as I've started my meditation practice about two years ago, mm. this aspect of letting go. And it took me a while to really understand the nature of holding on to things because it's really subconscious. Yes. It's a really subtle thing. And it really does relate to the idea of like all of these neuroses you have when you're on stage and why people can't connect with you when you're engaging with them. It's because you have no space within yourself for the other person, as we were saying before, to really take shape in your mind and your being in your heart. And people can feel that when you are not receiving them completely and seeing them because you have all of these filters and all these labels and expectations so really like training that awareness to be able to recognize how much weight you're carrying with you in any one given situation. And I notice a lot of people have a lot of weightiness and a lot of expectation and label around being healthy. I have a lot of people in my family who are like, oh, you're the healthy one. And mind you, I'm not really even like I'm just <laughs> starting on this, but it, they have this kind of initial resistance to it because they have gotten some downloads somewhere that being healthy is this really egocentric, yeah. self-absorbed kind of thing. And it yeah. inherently means that you are just really narcissistic. Yeah. But like the way that I look at it isn't a moralistic thing. It Like you were saying, it's a physiological thing. It's a matter of wholesomeness. Like are your actions creating wholesome? Do you feel integrated with your life? Do you feel engaged with what you're doing? And cultivating the right behaviors which promote wholesomeness not from like a moralistic critical parent way but one in which you feel connected it's a very palpable you're on the edge of what your life is and who you are and when you get into that rhythm when you get into that that flow which i i know you know it's it's just very obvious well, you know, it, that's, those are all really good points. I really appreciate you saying that. It's very challenging as um, um, living in this day and age and the way things are presented in terms of the, again, the food and television, you know, the commercials and all that stuff. Stuff looks good. To the point about narcissism, there is a certain amount of that because you are, if I understand it, you are taking care of yourself so that you're self-absorbed. But... Having recently had a, uh, my brother just passed of cancer and my other sister was in the hospital for six weeks and she uh, was morbidly obese, still is. And um, the condition that was brought on was because of not taking care of herself. So now all of us are going in and helping and blah, blah, blah. So isn't that a form of narcissism when you don't take care of yourself and all of a sudden you have to have people come in and, and take care of you? So... Uh, you know, I get that, and I'm not trying to judge this or that. 
everybody obviously will do what they will. When someone becomes aware and sensitive, their life changes and something magical happens. They, they begin to fall in love with living in a sense. And everybody looks kind of beautiful no matter what their size, shape uh, are. So it, it's interesting to me. So, yeah. Yeah, I really like the Timothy Leary quote, in order to do good, you have to feel good. You know, like it's really, I know it's kind of like a hallmark kind of thing to say, but in order to love somebody else, you really do have to love yourself. And how else do you love yourself? It's not, this is kind of like a a big thing a lot of people are talking about, like self-care, self-love. Like what does it actually look like but to show up for yourself every single day and do the hard thing? Yeah, it's hard. You know, as you know, our workout, um, it's pretty hard. It's an intensive workout that uh, we do. Um, And, but the hardest part of it is when I come home, and I have another 160 some hours of like, okay, how am I going to eat? Because it's so, hard. it's so hard because stuff looks good. I don't care if it's engineered or not, man, junk food always looks good to me. So, you know, it does take a certain amount of discipline and sometimes I have it and sometimes I don't, but I just sort of love it as I'm doing it and, and do reasonably well with it. And to me, my form of expression in terms of my livingness is to help other people. I like to be physiologically alive enough and strong enough to be able to still do that on a daily basis. And whether it's teaching or just, I mean, I think small things are good what we do for people. To me, those are the little heroes in the world, the people that do the simple things, open doors, smile at someone, and just have compassion for, for someone's experience. Because a lot of times people don't know better. This is all they do know. And it's even though they're responsible for their own thoughts, they don't know that necessarily. That indoctrinated viewpoint is very tough. It's a self-hypnosis that's going on, and it's very hard to break. That's why, you know, there's so many quotes that to wake up or to become aware is like threading the eye of a needle. Very few pass through that because it, it, it just takes so much to actually become aware that there might be a problem. Um, David Goggins, I think you know the... You can't hurt me. He's got a really interesting story. You know, he was a 300-pound guy, and his dad beat him and his mom. And 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 he said, it was inspiring to me, but he said, you know, I was better than my mediocre friends, but not much, which made me just, just mediocre, just not as mediocre. And he, he decided to change and make a change, and he became a ranger and all that stuff. And there's, you know, a New York bestseller, and he's, quite a monster and he lost a couple hundred pounds or whatever he lost, 150 pounds. And just, it was inspiring to me because I have always been, you know, work out more than somebody else in my family, but I never, I don't know if I ever hit my top. So these last couple of years working with Tom Trainer, I I have uh, really pushed to see, well, what can I do with this physicality and, and what is it going to require, you know, in terms of eating to, to have the right kind of muscle and uh, that's required because as you get older, you, need, you just need that stuff. And to do the kind of activities I still want to do, as I mentioned, climbing and, and all those other activities, uh, and let alone my show, it's a physical experience as a mind. Uh, you know, so it's a, it's a lot of discipline. It's a lot of self-awareness. And, uh, and, um, it, and it, I'm not going to say it's easy because it's not easy for me. It, 
thank God I got those principles. The difference between someone who does someone and someone who doesn't is just that. I recognize like, okay, you know, if you don't want to eat that, then you just can't eat it. I don't care what the heck my mind is saying. Just don't do it. And sometimes I win and sometimes I don't. And don't make a psychological problem out of problems. All right, maybe I do, maybe I don't. But I'm aware of it more often than not. And um, for those reasons that I've been able to share the experience of performing with people and help them find a way that may be a little bit different, a little more accepting for them and themselves, a little more loving, a little more caring, and show up in the world to help people because... um, Artists and creative people, they have their place in the world. And our society, meaning the American society, isn't always that generous with uh, artists and they're a little more favored towards the corporate. (laughs) You know, corporations get the tax breaks and all that stuff. Um, But we have a purpose, and that purpose is to help people um, experience themselves in a more textured way. like a tapestry, because we have all these aspects of ourselves. But society kind of has a way of crunching it down. You go to school and you get this and you become this. And some of those constructs um, don't work for all people at all times, like anything. They don't work for all people at all times. So how can we be sensitive to this one who needs maybe a different path or its propensity is towards something else, but we don't recognize it because we have standardized education. Uh, you know, just, and I'm not, I don't, I don't mean to judge, uh, you know, it is just what it is, but the problems we have are because we have, we create problems. It's not because they're, it's just all of a sudden there's a problem. There's a problem in the, in the making. Shooters and different things that are occurring is a, is a misunderstanding with themselves. They don't understand who they are in this gift of living and it's become so narrow that it's become a greedy adventure on the macro scale. You have the Putins that, you know, are greedy because it wants something, you know, like it can control an outcome. It can't. So uh, to me, it's, it's a very interesting experience in living. And uh, I don't have any answers, but the process is worth looking at and looking at what is the motivation behind X, Y, or Z? What did it what did it want? What is it trying to get? What is that conversation? Because when you really break it down, this is kind of hard to get. The voice in your head is indoctrinated viewpoints. It's never what is, because it doesn't know the moment. It only knows what it was programmed to know. It doesn't know the future. So it projects. And out of projection, you can have fear, you can have love, but it projects just the same, and then it reacts to its own projection. So where is the sense in that? Um, We have to step back as a humanity and look at who are we and what is this this experience of living? Because, you know, Christian Murdy would say that the mind is so momentous. You get on on an idea, you know, or a group, and they got a bunch of ideas for you, you start following those ideas and you know they all make sense i'm not saying they're good or bad but they they make sense in that moment and all of a sudden some catastrophe happens and and maybe it doesn't make as much sense anymore things like that so we have to slow that down and i think that's the value when you teach meditation is not to judge those thoughts but just slow down and recognize there are thoughts going on and maybe 
you want, oh, what's the source of that thought? Oh, maybe my dad, my mom, or my teacher, or somebody was unkind to me, or something like that. <laughs> Just as a side note, I remember a teacher in seventh grade said, you'll never be an artist. And then they saw me, well, I can't blame them too much because it was watercolor. And I got to say, it was my first experience with watercolor. It was pretty messy, but it crushed me. And that same person saw me perform at the College of Arts here in town and came up, did not knowing who I was, and said, wow, you are quite the artist. And I was quick to, because I know them. You don't forget that face. And I was quick to let them know, well, that's funny because you had told me in seventh grade, I'll never be an artist. And, and she owned up to it, apologized, and said it was a horrible thing to do and say, and I, I'm so sorry. I was, I was out of line. So I, I just think there's just so many of those little things that, you know, because we're insecure in the world. Um, you know, we're coming in, we're sensitive. And, you know, you, you see things and you're like, well, gosh, okay, is that the way it is? Wait a minute, wait, what's going on here? How is it, you know, I grew up in an era after the World War II and just after the Korean War, I'm like, and my grandparents, you know, my family was killed. And I'm like, why would people want to do that? And also we're in another one called Vietnam War. And now my friends are coming back dead. I'm like, wait, why? And then on and on with the wars that have never made sense to me other than economic greed. And, um, you know, and, and I get all the freedom and fighting for freedom. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, what's the motivation? Because nothing good comes out of that, you know, to, in my opinion. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. It's amazing how our individual karmas, which is really what you're talking about when you say the momentum of thoughts. It's yeah. Like the speedy nature of it. And it's really hard to discriminate and kind of tease apart and yeah. get them on their own because they're interdependent with so many other thoughts and yes. ideas. And it's to the point where we really don't even know where those original experiences happened. Yeah. So much of this stuff, I mean, we're talking about before we were even able to put things yes. into concept. Absolutely. You know, again, with the critical parent. Yeah. Like, there are so many raw data moments coming in and, yeah. you know, especially when we're talking about countries as well. And yeah. I can't help but feel that one of the best things that we can do on an individual basis is to first understand our own karmic yeah. uh, conditioning and our own situations right. before we even get engaged with like a larger scale kind of activism kind yeah. of thing, which I think is an important thing to like speak out and to try and get involved. But unless you really know who you are and like, why you're engaging in the way that you're engaging it's so hard to not just like add right. to the cacophony yes. of situations yeah no it's so true and that just that mechanical and um uh, the mechanics of this consciousness are very interesting different than the source awareness and they um <laughs> they get tripped easily and you know i've always felt like um if you have to learn about what's going on on the inside, there's probably a problem. Otherwise, you know, you kind of live with this conscious awareness of living here. And then also you go like, oh, okay. So there's something going on down there. And also I got to learn about stuff I didn't want to know about, uh, you know, or cancers and things like that. And um, the momentums get tripped easily. I agree with that. And so what to do about that is, is an interesting thing. I mean, you know, everybody finds their own way, how to integrate those areas of the mind. Uh, but clearly, when when you find yourself on a um, tangent or down a rabbit hole, you just want to might, might want to recognize, oh, 
I'm just in a rabbit hole. Okay. I'm creating, okay, I'm thinking, all right, all right, all right. You know, I've always kind of said to myself, all right, because it thinks all sorts of things. I'm like, all right, well, there's that. And it can be good, bad, right, or wrong, but man, all right. Whenever I notice within myself, if there's a clear protagonist or antagonist to the story that I'm weaving, it's probably bullshit. Yeah. It's, you know. Well, you know, it has its root in something, Mm -hmm. you know, and I agree on the outer label of bullshit, but it's got its root somewhere, you know. You know, we desire some things and we resist some things. And based on those earlier years, pre-cognitive uh, years, you know, even in utero, there's some response that's going on. And we don't often know that origin point. I do know that um, having experienced and taking people through processes that you can come to what I considered an um, unpatterned mind. You you can... So that unpatterned mind, another way to say it is the limits of the mind. Because the thoughts that we put in there from all of time um, are there. So what happens if we're not bound by those? And we could call that an, an unlimited person. And experiencing, this is hard to, to describe, but using right now, we're, we're in the limits of our mind, to describe an unlimited mind is almost pointless. Needless to say, one can experience limitlessness, which means you're not bound. And it's an extraordinary feeling, a sense feeling, and interaction with the world when that is occurring. And I think, you know, bringing it back to the idea of presence and uh, communication, too, is when you are limitless, other people can feel that. I don't really know what that kind of metabolic process is, but I've definitely interacted with people who are in that state, and you also are invited in. Yes. And it's something that affects the entire space around. Weird, synchronistic things start happening around them, and it's a really incredible thing, which all goes back into, you know, what you're offering for people. It is the art of presence. I didn't make it up. It's just what's there. But one can discover that and then use that for going forward and living. And and just, you know, the mind is very quick to label. And it's not, you know, I haven't been able to stop it, but it pauses for great periods of time. Or the untruth of it happens where I realize, so maybe the first thing I see is... Uh, um, something outside or inside and I go and the label comes up like microphone or cup. But if I just let that go for a moment, I actually invite myself to experience what else is going on there and with people and events. And it's just becomes a very living, uh, a livingness quality alive in that moment that was no longer bound by my label and my past experience with it. It invites a more present moment and that's the same with on stage. It's just a magical moment. Of, and the performers that have achieved that, have having worked here, uh, really feel that themselves. And the feedback that they get is extraordinary. And I want them to, because they are extraordinary. But you got to understand what's not extraordinary. It's weird, like the path of clarity is often on the road of confusion. And now you have to know, it's a part of it. You can't have this kind of experience without seeing the ways in which you're not having that experience. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I think in the Indian culture, they go, not this, not that. And I, you know, I don't care to live my life about not this, not that. It's, it's just a phrase that, that you go through until you have the experience of thisness, not not thisness. This, I know, right? Yeah, yeah. Right? It's kind of funny. Yeah. But yeah, it's our, it is our birthright. And every person is that capacity always. Sign me up. All right. You so, already got signed up. Yeah, I guess this was it. Yeah. Yeah. Birth, so, birth yeah. signed you oh, up. Yep. Yep. So how can people find you? How can people start this incredible journey that you're able to take them on? Do you have virtual options or what's your, how do people interact with you? Well, currently um, people, I can do virtual options in which I can coach people because as long as I can see them, I can see what's going on. Uh, when I hear them speak, I can also feel sense from the hearing what they say and what they don't say, but really being able to see them. The, the website that I use for the coaching is called coachpresence.com. And that pretty much gives a lot of testimonials for artists that have been through here and uh, the book and all that stuff that's available. Um, and I'm also, I do workshops and I can go out. I like going out. I mean, uh, it, it's fun and, and it, it becomes, it's not just psychological. And I just want to touch on that. That is the point of just getting awareness about oneself. The next part of the coaching comes to the physicality because people, once again, do too much with their body. So I teach the principles of decrue and other aspects of understanding how the body shows up on stage. And I coach people on how to stand, how to look, how to walk. They don't have to copy me or imitate me, but they become, they begin to see the power of a glance the power of standing still, the power of moving. They begin to sense that and really feel that. And the next part of coaching, which I think is ever so important also, is what do you say to the audience? How do you say what you say to the audience? So I also coach on how to speak. Uh, and there's some principles there that, that I think are very useful. Um, just silly things that you know people do that don't understand the nature of the exchange between an audience and a person on stage. Sometimes they drop off with their voice because it's about the 4,000th time that they've introduced a song or their own name and they drop off like this, you know? And so the audience is like, wait, wait, what, what? And now you just broke that attention because they're probably gonna ask the group, what did he say or what did she say? And all of a sudden you broke the attention. So you don't wanna be responsible for that. So to me, it's a, it's a full understanding of uh, what is attention, how am I uh, repelling or attracting attention and both physical and in the um, audio world that we are in? Yeah. I love it. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, this book that's staring me right here at the table. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, it's a gift for you. So the Performer's Essential Handbook. And then the next project, as I mentioned, I'm working on social anxiety because on stage it's acute. But in the world, we've developed some such anxiety about living. So I'm taking a lot of these principles and putting them into a module, which will be an a, a audio-visual experience, you know, virtual, to see, and also a workbook. And then, as I mentioned before, the other one will be Never Age a Day. And these are just the principles I work by, and there's many others, but these are the ones that I find are effective and essential. Well, thank you so much, Rob. This has been an absolute treat getting this all together. It's been on the, the books for a while. Yeah. So this fits right in with the wheelhouse. So. Yeah, I appreciate you too. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks. Yep. Whew, you get all that? 
That was the episode, friends. Thank you so much for joining us all the way through till the end. One more time for Rob Ryder. That is coachpresence.com. If you want to get in contact with him, I really encourage it. If you're a musician or you have to do anything that requires a stage and a microphone, I think you would benefit from it. So yeah, thank you again so much for joining us. We also got that Patreon, patreon.com slash 21st Century Vitalism. If you ever learned anything, uh, yeah, consider throwing us some ducats. You know, that definitely helps put the smile on my face, which helps me put a smile on your face and everybody's smiling. That's how you end world poverty, right? It's give money to me. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. All right, friends. Thank you so much. We will see you in another two weeks with a bang up episode.